Hello, I'm Bill Carr, the host of Shift for Brains, a podcast focused on real and very personal stories of people who are affected by issues that challenge us as a community and as individual human beings. We taped our first episode in my home in Chibuktuk, also known as Halifax, in unceded Mi'kmaq territory, also known as Nova Scotia. Our first episode is called Food Insecurity, where we talk about what can only be described as a quiet epidemic in our communities. I'm here with Jackie Torrens, who's a freelance writer, director, documentarian, known for her strong visual style. It says right here on your bio that that's the case. A partner with Jessica Brown in a company called Peep Media. Uh, you did a documentary, East, Edge of East, uh, Small Town Showbiz. Uh, you're working on one now, which we'll hopefully talk about later in a little bit. Uh, Bernie Langell wants to know who killed Bernie Langell. Uh, that's, those are the things. But the reason that you're here today is because of a documentary that you did called My Week on Welfare, uh, nominated for Best Documentary in Screen Nova Scotia Awards, and a special recognition in the Nova Scotia Legislature for its valuable contribution to the discussion of the state of income assistance in Canada, which I'm going to ask you about later. Hi, Jackie. Great. Hey, Bill. <laughs> and I'm here with Tim Blades, is a recipient of income assistance. He's a member of BRAG, Benefits Reform Action Group, a team of first voice welfare recipients and professionals from our community who speak up on issues with and fight with and fight for change with the Nova Scotia Employment Support and Income Assistance Program. Uh, you're also co-chair for the Child Support Clawback Working Group, which we'll ask you about later. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. Um, what we're going to try to do is is go through some ideas and discussions. And I know that there's so many levels to this. It's, it's a bit, asking you to come and talk about food insecurity is a bit like saying, let's talk about art. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. just, it's got so many uh, implications. So we're going to, I'm going to try to keep it as narrow as possible in terms of uh, about uh, your experiences and and most important of all, uh, how you see this issue evolving in our in our culture and in our world around us. Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna read something here that I wanted to start with. The World Food Summit of 1996 defined food security as existing when all people at all times have access to sufficient, safe, nutritious food to maintain a healthy and active life. And that's called food security. That's their definition. And this uh, podcast is called food insecurity because I think it's not the security that's the problem. It's the insecurity that we're dealing with. Now, mm -hmm. I gave you that to look at before we started this, but I wanted to add this little statement, which I found in my research that was very distressing. In 1989, the House of Commons issued a statement. This House seeks to achieve the goal of eliminating poverty among Canadian children by the year 2000. And I uh, thought... Mm -hmm. Job well done. He said sarcastic. <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was going to... It's good. I was going to start with you. When you hear the international definition of food security and that dated pronouncement from our government, what goes through your mind, Tim? What on earth are they doing? It's... Uh, provincially, uh, if you're on welfare, mm -hmm. you live 30 to 60% below the poverty line. And the welfare reform that they're doing will only see a 2% or a 5% increase. Mm -hmm. So federally, provincially, what are we doing? And poverty and 
food insecurity is a part of poverty. You cannot get rid of poverty by underfunding it. It multiplies. Mm-hmm. It gets worse. Right on. And, and it's interesting when you say that. The, the, there's an issue that they talk about child poverty, and I always think, well, all kids are poor. They've got small allowances. <laughs> it's, it's about the parents' poverty, and it's about what happens when, when the, the, the culture or the society or the community uh, allows that uh, to occur. Right? So I'm going to ask you, Jackie, when, when you hear those two statements back-to-back, what do you think? Well, I think uh, we have Nova Scotia, actually. Uh, Tim knows this. We have the dubious distinction of being number one in the country for food insecurity. Um, I think one in five children in the province live in uh, poverty, and one in three in Cape Breton live in poverty. And, of course, that means uh, food insecurity. And when we talk about, uh, you know... Specifically, I can talk about people who are on income assistance. When we talk about the people who do not have food security in this province who are on assistance, the number one demographic of people right now who are on assistance are those with disabilities. So people who cannot work, the majority of them are long-term disabled, Mm -hmm. so they will never be able to uh, work in the way that we, I guess, commonly seen as work. They definitely are people that give back to their um, society when and how they can. But so those are that's a demographic of people who are food insecure. The next largest demographic is single parents and their children on the system. And out of that demographic, the that we're talking predominantly females. Mm-hmm. So disabled senior people and single parents who are predominantly female and their children are the people on assistance who are food insecure in this province. Mm-hmm. That's who we're punishing. And, and I also, I think it was Escazoni is one of the areas where it's 7 out of 10 kids is that right? are in poverty. Yeah, I don't have so those stats wow. myself, the, but I'm sure you're it, right. It's, it, and the, and it, when you say we're number one, we were number three. So we've, uh, yeah. we've dubiously really, moved up we've or down. we food. <laughs> yes, yes. It's, 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 it's not a bronze anymore. That's you know? right. You were, Jackie, when you did your film, when you when you produced this film, just give a little bit of the genesis of, of why you decided to do it and how you came to do it. I mean, you probably ask that a lot, but <clears throat> yeah. I mean, we want to hear it. No, on it's a good question. So my week on welfare, which was done for CBC in the documentary channel, and you can watch it online if you Google CBC and my week on welfare. Um, that I basically went and lived with two different people. I visited more people on the system, but I lived specifically with two different people who are currently on the system. And I wanted to live with, I wanted to have each of them represent a a particular demographic. The first person I lived with was a single mother on the system. And that's a demographic that lots of people have in their mind as uh, someone who's on welfare. You know, Mm -hmm. those single mothers who are having babies to get the free ride on welfare. Supposedly. And then the second demographic of people I lived with, I wanted to pick a middle-aged, educated white man, someone that you wouldn't think who would be on the system, who is on the system. Um, And the reason I wanted to do this documentary was... About 25 years ago, I myself, uh, I found myself living on the system. I was, I came from a middle class, progressive family. The, the person who was most surprised to find myself on welfare was myself. And I had all sorts of attitudes about what kind of person, what kind of character they had uh, uh, if you w- were on welfare. So the first person stereotypes I had to overcome about um, the kind of person who goes on welfare w- were my own. Mm-hmm. And my story in terms of how I ended up on assistance, um, uh, you know, I I, uh, came from a very dysfunctional family and uh, was basically on my own, uh, living on my own as a 16-year-old. 
and uh, ended up having a baby before I was 18 years old and uh, by a person who um, was not a co-parent in any way and who didn't provide any financial support in any way. And in order for me to get my life together and my baby's life together, I had to go on assistance and so to survive, one, which is what I did. But then secondly, I, I went on assistance so that I could go back to school and I could get my grade 12 and then I could go on to post-secondary education. And it's only because I was able to do that that my baby and I were able to get off the system. And uh, in total, I was on the system for four years. And I was so shocked by how I was treated as a person who was on assistance, I, I wasn't prepared for it in any way. And the way I was treated, I was like, when you're on assistance, it's like you are everyone's dog to kick. And it would surprise you the, 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 the areas the mistreatment comes from. I was mistreated by legal aid lawyers. I was treated by uh, teachers. I was mistreated by people in the medical profession. Like everyone thinks they can kick you because everyone's bought into these welfare stereotypes. And so a huge uh, reason for me wanting to do this documentary was I wanted to show the reality ver versus the stereotypes. We all think we know what it's like to be on welfare because of these stereotypes, but the stereotypes are not reality. Like people don't actually know how much money do you get for rent? How much money do you get for food? We're all going on these stereotypes. If you're on assistance, you must be out there with your cell phone and your smokes and your beer and you're just living off the system. And, and that is not the reality at all. As Tim said, People on, the, people on the system are largely disabled people, largely senior people, largely single parents and their children, largely women. And uh, they are brought there by circumstance and they are living 30 to 60% below the poverty line. And we are punishing them for that, for do needing you, help. Do you, do you experience that stereotype uh, issue in Tim? All right. is, it, is it something that, that is a daily thing for you? Is it, is it occasional or how does it feel? Uh, it's hard to put into words. It's people, especially like with me, like where I can appear to be pretty healthy, but whereas I have a condition that's hard to diagnose, hard to determine, I have a rare illness. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's hard because people look at me and I appear to, I might appear to be healthy. One day I might not look so good, so people wonder might wonder why is he on the system? Right. Yeah. Right. See, I, in, the, in the research that I was doing, one of the things that I noticed instantly is that the issue is vast, and, and I wanted to, to, to narrow it down. One of the things that I thought about was food distribution and all of that, the, sort of the, the uh, you know, larger political issues. And, I'm, and I think there's, it's worthy of another show, actually, because I, I don't want to get into that. But I, I was going over the, the sort of issues as they come. There's, there's housing, there's child care, there's pharmacare communications, dental care, education, the job search and job compliance, wage parity, wage fairness, mental and physical health, which was you were just talking about, Tim, addictions and addiction services. All of these factor into this, A, poverty, and, and the manifestation of poverty that we're talking about, which is food insecurity. Absolutely. You're given mm -hmm. only so much uh, per month for, for rent, 
I think the number is 535 for a single able-bodied, disabled person. It's less if you're able-bodied. You're actually not allowed to live with other people when you're on welfare, so you can't save money that way. It's actually 300 if you're able-bodied. So you get 300 a month for rent if you're an able-bodied person on welfare. So, of course, and then you get a personal allowance. So imagine yourself uh, on your own or with your children trying to find a place that uh, you can live in for that amount of rent. Well, not even the slummiest place can you live in for that amount of rent. And so what happens, of course, is any uh, any extra that you have to pay in rent or yeah. for lights or utilities or anything, that comes out of your food allowance. And that is why people are starving. And yeah. people are literally starving. When I was on assistance, I was... Uh, I was hungry all the time, and the last few days of every month when the money just was completely non-existence, when you're kind of waiting to start the month over again, I would have one bowl of cereal a day, and I would try and make that cereal stretch. I would make sure the baby got food, and in order for the baby to be fed, it meant I had to go on a bowl of cereal uh, a day. At that time, I'm a full-time parent, single parent, taking care of my kid, and I'm trying to go to school, I'm trying to better my life, and I'm trying to do my studies, and I'm doing it on a bowl of cereal. And, uh, you know, also on a tangent yeah. at that time, I had a social worker who um, you're often at the mercy of who your caseworker is, yeah. and I've had good caseworkers and bad caseworkers. Um, the good caseworkers, the most they could do is at least not make life tougher for you. They couldn't yeah. necessarily help you, but they would at least stay out of your way. The bad caseworkers would make a hellish life even more hellish. And case in point, this caseworker that I had at one point when I'm trying to finish up my grade 12 was trying to get me kicked off the system. He would show up at my house for surprise visits, and he would eat my food. He would <coughs> eat the food from my cupboard. <sighs> wow. So anyway, just making that point, that's why people are food insecure when they are on assistance, because they're not given enough, even if they got all of their, the maximum allotted amounts for the different areas, they still wouldn't have enough to live on. And as it is, they have to take their food money and it goes towards the rent. If if I may add one or a few more little things there, Uh, things like transportation Mm -hmm. and bus pass and phone. Not provided. They're based on medical need. And if they determine that you're that you're not in need of those things, you don't get them. So if a person needs a phone, that also comes out of their personal allowance, which means less food. If they need to travel, that also comes out of that that money. So what's a person to do? Mm-hmm. If you're a single parent or a disabled person or just a human being, you need a phone and you need to be able to yeah. travel. In Week on Welfare, we touched upon the transportation issue. Um, Aaron, who was featured in the documentary, who's a disabled person, uh, visits his doctor anywhere between eight and a dozen times yeah. per month, and he is still in danger at any time losing his bus pass because uh, even though he might see his doctor a dozen times a month, that's still not necessarily considered enough times for him to warrant a bus pass from community services. See, the, in, when listening to your, uh, uh, watching your video, the, the My Week on Welfare, the uh, number of times I was shocked, A, and then, and then went just a, a tinge of disbelief. Knowing you, I know that it's, it's all accurate and it's all true. But living in this culture and living in this society and being a, a, a middle-class, male, white, privileged guy my whole life, it was almost incomprehensible. And when I was going through the statistics, I, I was reading through the statistics and then I had to go out to do some stuff in the city. And I was walking along and there were a crowd of people walking by. And I suddenly went... You know, one in four, 
So I'm looking at 40 people and, and, and do, you know, do the math. I'm, I'm, and I know that there are people who are, it's like an invisible epidemic. And, and the causes of which are clear. We, you know, and as, as, you, as you're mentioning, you can't, you, the, the money only goes so far. And yet, in our political uh, social reality, this, this stereotyping, and this is what I'm going to come back to, the stereotyping seems to be significant. And it's, and it's misinformation. And that in itself causes uh, shame because there seems to be a blaming. And, I, and one of the questions I wanted to ask was, what is it about this issue and this culture that allows people to blame the people affected by food insecurity? And do either of you have any insights into that? I think it's a way of, when we blame someone, it's a way of protecting ourselves. It's a way of saying, that person did something wrong. What happened to them was their fault. So whatever happened to them won't happen to me. Mm-hmm. Like, Basically, it's a way of saying they're food insecure because of their choices. They, they deserve that. Whereas I'll be smarter than them mm-hmm. and I'll avoid food, food insecurity. Right. I think, I, I think Tim's absolutely right. All that stuff is going on and, and also contributing to it is, you know, life's really tough for a lot of people and a lot of Nova Scotians mm. and we're all just kind of getting by and these stereotypes uh, allow us to scapegoat a group of people and go, well, look at them. They're yeah. just lazy. They're not working. They're getting a free ride and here I am I'm working my ass off and I'm still having trouble paying the rent, you know, so, so, there's, so there's a scapegoating thing that's very purposely going on. And the other thing that's happening is, is that these, um, I mean, you're absolutely right, these stereotypes have a, are intentional. They are intended to create silence. They are intended yeah. to create shame. The shame creates the silence. And as long as people who are on assistance or living in poverty are shamed into keeping silent, we don't have to know the reality mm-hmm. of the lives that people who are on assistance or low income have to live. Because if we know the actual reality versus the stereotypes, then the onus is on us to do something. And we don't want to mm-hmm. do something. And so it's much easier to say no, that that person is that in that position because of their moral character as opposed to the reality for the majority of people who are on welfare, which is a combination of circumstances. Yeah. Even Aaron, the man, the disabled man yeah. and the dog, worked all of his life until five years ago. He has cerebral palsy and a bunch of other things. He worked all of his life until he had a drastic fall down a set of stairs and he, <sighs> he simply cannot work anymore. He volunteers on days when he can. This is a man who wants to give back in any way he can. Mm -hmm. So those stereotypes, um, they're there for our comfort. Well, Sherry, one of the other characters in your, in your, in your, uh, Sherry, sorry. She, she actually had to have a battle with DSS over student loans. She's an amazing person. Uh, yeah. Uh, she actually, when I got a hold of her and Jessica Brown, uh, the co-producer, my co-producer in uh, Pete Media, who produced the doc, we went and met with Sharice, and right from the get-go, she was like, you're going to want to have me in, my, in your documentary. <laughs> and I also want to say that was an amazing thing for anybody who agreed to p- appear in that documentary. Aaron, before the documentary, had never told anyone he was on income assistance. So I had to go to people who were on welfare that have horrible things said about them all the time and say, hey... Do you want to put your face on camera? Mm. Also, do you want me and a camera crew to live with you for a few days? And these people were incredibly courageous and generous and said uh, yes. But yes, Sharice, 
an amazing uh, single parent uh, of a great kid called McCaden um, going back to school. And in order to keep going to school, she was allowed to go to school under a program called Career Seek that only lets a few individuals each year from the province go to school. That's only since 2001. Before 2001, the system allowed anyone who could get themselves into school and get themselves accepted into a post-secondary institution, you were allowed to go. You, you could get a student loan. You would have to pay that back, so not a free ride at all. That's how I was able to get a university degree while I was on the system and get off the system. That's how the former Minister of Community Services, Joanne Bernard, in the 90s was able to get off the system. She got two degrees. She was actually on the system for nine years, which is two and a half times long, almost two and a half times longer than the actual average. The average for most people staying on the system is four years. Mm-hmm. And when Sharice went to school, she was going to school for four years when suddenly, out of the blue, arbitrarily, and this happens a lot to people on the system, she got a letter mm-hmm. saying, you're not allowed to go to school anymore. That student loan you have, isn't it? we're now considering that an asset, even though it was a loan. She fought... Uh, the uh, community services, it took them to the Supreme Court of the province, uh, but was cut off benefits for 10 months, still went to school that entire time. The only way she was able to do that was through support of her family. In my case, I had no family to support me through it. So if that had happened to me, my school would have been done and finished. But she fought them, and uh, and she won. So she's and quite it's one an of those. Person. It's one of those things where you say it, 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 she's got enough of a struggle. She's a single parent. Yeah. She's trying to get an education. Now she's got to fight the government that's supposed to be, yeah, in a support position. All while hungry. All while hungry. Because we're talking about someone who's food, her and her kid who are food insecure. This is this is something I was going to come to too. That you combine the lack of nutrition with the stress and the shame. And, you, and, and you've got a, a trifecta of factors that, that, A, could lead to depression, but also we know the neuroscience is in on food. If we're not fed properly and we're stressed and we're tired, you know, be, it, all of these things lead to poor decision-making. You know, the, the idea of going to school and studying on a, on a, you know, we know that the kids, you know, they're talking about the breakfast program, which is one of the first things cut whenever there seems to be a, a, a moment to cut things. But we're talking about people who are trying to live their lives and get out of situations that they don't want to be in, improve themselves, and yet we're handicapping them in, yeah. a, in, in this most yeah. essential and, way. And throwing our judgment on them and every yeah. day. I also just want to point out before I forget, uh, in terms of welfare fraud, this is brought up a lot. When we were doing Week on Welfare, we went out on the street and we would ask people, give me the percentage of people that you think commit welfare fraud who are on the system. And even people who saw themselves as uber-liberal and progressive would say anywhere between 25 and 65%. Um, The figures at a Queen's University are um, 3.2% of people on the system uh, nationally commit welfare fraud. It's actually 22% of people who lie claiming goods across the border. That's how... So it's 3.2% of welfare fraud. And let me just give you a description of what welfare fraud is. It's not actually Mm. buying a car when you're on the system because you don't have the money for that. It's literally like, hey, someone gave me a 20, and I'm not going to tell community services about that because I'm starving and I'm going to get a loaf of bread for my kid. Mm. That's welfare fraud. Another couple of things I want to mention, Bill, if you don't Mm. mind. No, no. Um, In terms of food insecurity, two of the things we did in the documentary was, one, we went to a food bank, and two, we went to a soup kitchen, because those are often thrown out in a, you know, it's Christmas time right now, in a very Dickensian way for poor people. Like, are there no food banks? Are there no soup kitchens? Well, yes, they are. 
food banks exist because we are allowing government and our government representatives to shirk their responsibility. Food banks should not exist. They do. But if you go to a food bank, here's the reality. You just can't go anytime you yeah. want. You can go only one time a month to a food bank in your area. They take all your information so that you can't, like, food bank hop and get... And you're at the mercy of what food they may or may not have in at that time. And usually it's a lot of carbohydrates, yeah. which only last a few days in a row. So you're not getting a month's worth of food. And that's the only time you can go. And if you're a disabled person or a single parent, um, you, you don't have a car. Yeah. You may not have a bus pass. It all depends on how many bags you are yeah. able to carry as well. In terms of soup kitchens, um, there are soup kitchens around. Um uh, the the problem that uh, I want to point out with them is that a soup kitchen doesn't isn't this isn't uh, the be all and end all solution for everyone. Yeah. When we went and visited a soup kitchen in my week on welfare, I went with Aaron, who very kindly agreed to go with me. It's a very shameful thing for people to go do, and that's because um, we have shamed poor people into feeling shame about being poor. Mm -hmm. But it's not a perfect solution. When I was there at the soup kitchen, I thought a lot about Sharice and her kid, and I thought about me and my baby when I was on income assistance. I never went to a soup kitchen because there's all sorts of individuals who go to soup kitchens, including people with addictions and mental illness, and there is nothing wrong with that. But if you are a parent, that's an environment to consider. Um, that's a difficult environment to take your child into just to get a meal. And so many people don't go because of the shame, mm -hmm. but also many people don't go because there are extenuating circumstances that, that make them hesitate. And it's and it's a difficult it's a difficult environment, I would yep. imagine, yep. On, on a number of levels. And also to line up out front. That was the the one thing that as I drove by one I, I noticed they were all lined, you know, you're sort of lined up out front so that everybody can see that you're going into the soup kitchen. That's right. And if, if I may add that fifty uh, percent of all people that access food banks mm -hmm. are income assistance recipients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and on top of that, the provincial government funds them to the tune of $12,000 a year. Funds the food banks. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, so, millions are spent at food banks and the government chips in 12000 Yeah. 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 Ben, the, the, in the Benefits Reform Action Group that you, you must hear, hear stories constantly around these, this issue. Oh, yes. Uh, I even have a friend who, who signs up for the... Once a year, they do the Christmas support thing. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who can't access it because he he lives too far away from where he he would have to pick up the his food. So he would have to go on the bus mm -hmm. and maybe get a basket of food or however many bags of food. And he he has a handicap; he can't walk properly. Right. So how on earth is he supposed to get that from? wherever he has to pick it up at, back to his host in North and Dartmouth. Yeah. See, the, yeah. specifics, the specifics of these things uh, start to get a bit crazy because you've got caseworkers, and, and you mentioned caseworkers that are good and caseworkers that are yeah. bad. Do you, have you experienced both as well, Tim? Oh, yes. And uh, one thing that we should reiterate that there are cert there's a certain wiggle room when it comes to the policy manual, and there are some caseworkers that will... Cut and cut and cut. Mm -hmm. I've unfortunately had a caseworker that was very bad about that. Mm -hmm. uh, a caseworker that said that he could not provide in writing why he was cutting me. Right. And then again, I have caseworkers who are very good who will do everything they can to try to help you. So you, you, when you did your... One of the things that struck me was, was that people... Uh, 
who don't know can't make proper decisions. You've got the stereotypes working against you. But in the caseworkers issue, I thought every caseworker should spend a month on welfare. Every person yeah. should spend a month on welfare. Certainly anybody who's uh, involved in government and anyone who's involved in the community services, like really even a week. There's plenty of criticism about, you know, that's just like a, 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 a trick, a, a sort of cheap kind of tactic. Like, but and, and in some ways, like, sure, if you spent a week or a month on welfare, you still really have a lot to learn about the yeah. reality of being on assistance. <laughs> I was only able to do it because I, I was on it four years previously. <laughs> And if, if I remember yeah. correctly, didn't you issue a challenge at one point? I did issue a challenge. One of the one a local MLA came out. You know, he had many people coming to his office uh, on assistance who were hungry and needed more money. And he publicly uh, went to the media and started talking about how we should have people on assistance picking up trash by the side of the road. That these people wanted to work, and so maybe this was a solution. And uh, I spoke publicly about how I think this MLA was really well-intentioned but misinformed. I mean, if he knew anything about assistance, you would know that you're talking to a demographic that's largely disabled and cannot go out to the side of the road and pick up trash. Or they are parents with children and, and they can't, they also can't yeah. go out to the side of the road and pick up trash. Also, they're hungry. They're currently uh, hungry right now. But, but back to this idea of just spending a week or a month on welfare, like, um, it certainly wouldn't give you an idea of the entire reality, but just a week of, if you, when I was on the documentary, when I broke down the average of what both Aaron and Sharice had left to spend on food per day, and this is an average for anyone on assistance, it was $4 a day mm. for my three meals. And that wasn't counting things like shampoo or conditioner, tampons, if you're a female, like, uh, that was... Uh, that's just food. no condiments. I had four dollars a day to live on. I was starving during that week, so it would be a really good idea if you want to if you want to just even put a toe dip, and I stress a toe dip, yeah. into the reality of what it's like to live on welfare, to be poor. Um, you could try it for a week, living on four dollars a day. One of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast, that I wanted to start with the, and start with this subject, is because it it seems to be a quiet uh, uh, and and rather ugly epidemic, in in my opinion. And I went on uh, in, to do the research. I went on um, different web uh, areas, and when I went on Flipboard, which is one of my favorite sort of information places, I looked up food insecurity, and the only thing that they talked about with food security, actually, which was, what they, was the title of it, was uh, famines in, in other lands and, and immigrant uh, situations, which I don't diminish at all. But the, the fact that that's happening over there seems to be easier than to, than to actually address what's happening here. And I, and, I, and I was thinking about the stereotypes, and it disinforms the public, who's, who, for whatever reason, stay disinformed, but it also elects governments. Who you know? It, it, the, the, you see the government sort of feed on on the on the different um, misconceptions and misperceptions, uh, and 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 end up making policy based on what they got elected for, which was based on a stereotype and a misunderstanding. And a, and a, a, absolutely, a, a, governments yeah. elect. Uh, uh, we elect the governments, and uh, governments. Uh, keep perpetuating the stereotypes as mm -hmm. well because it's in their interest financially to do so or so they believe 
Um, the thing about if you uh, if you go read the um, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, they do a poverty report that comes out I think every five years, and one just came out this year. It's actually a really readable mm -hmm. read for a it's report about like 26 that. Twenty six pages. It's actually yeah. very readable. And yes. they talk about the cost of poverty, and in terms of uh, in yeah. terms of our wanting to punish people. Uh, our wanting to buy into the stereotypes which allow us to believe that people are poor because of their moral character as opposed to circumstance, yeah. mm -hmm. um, that, that urge to punish people, and again, I think it comes from a primal fear, right? If we acknowledge that actually people are poor because of a combination of circumstances, we have to yeah. look at the fact that this could actually happen to any one of us any time. Yeah. And so that's why we would rather go with these stereotypes of, oh, no, it must be you and something you have done. Mm -hmm. Um, and that urge to punish the thing that we are afraid of, the thing that we think will happen to us, costs us extra billions every year in this province alone. Yeah. When I read, I think it was the 2010 report, because Week on Welfare came out in 2015, um, the Center for Policy Alternatives, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, was estimating the extra yeah. costs of poverty were costing us at that time $2.2 billion yeah. extra per year in the province. And how do I In the I province. Say, in the pro just yes. in the province. Yes. And that comes through things like, so for instance, in Week on Welfare, Aaron's disabled. Yeah. Because he's disabled, he can't afford all the medications that he needs. He can afford maybe two or three, depending on the cost. He needs multiple ones. So yeah. he, every month, has to play Russian roulette with his health. Mm -hmm. He has to decide which disorder is feeling worse and which he's going to kind of attend to. He's ended up in the hospital multiple times. Yeah. He's had an ambulance called and ended up in the hospital. That costs us more than if this man was just given the medication he needed, preventative health. So that's just one area that we, we end up paying more, not to mention... Um, you know, when we, it's now harder for people to go get an education. We're pushing them, community services yeah. has an interest in pushing those who are able to work into a low income job areas. Yeah. So the tremendous, this is all what always breaks my heart the tremendous amount of lost potential talent. Uh, that we will never see because yeah. we are we have a vested interest in punishing those we are afraid of. Yeah. Well, we're we're and we're we're now opening the doors uh, to a, a series of issues. So I'm gonna yeah. so and and I and I thank you both for for doing this. But before we close it off, I want to ask uh, a, a critical question: Who's responsible ultimately for food insecurity, and what? Can we do as individuals, and I think this is one of the things I, I want this podcast to do, is create a uh, uh, an awareness of perhaps they, more information is needed. Um, we've got to take a look at our own situations and, and what's happening in our world and in our society. And and the other thing is to also empower and embolden them to, to make some decisions. If I'm listening to this podcast and I'm saying, okay, this something has to be done, what would you... Tim, Tim, I'll start with you. What would you? What would? What would? Are some of the suggestions that you would make as to what we can do moving forward? I would say write letters to your MLA, write to every politician you can think of, speak up because J Jackie's proof of this. I'm proof of this. Aaron's proof of this. When one person speaks up, you embolden and empower another person to speak up. I'm actually meeting with a neighbor of mine this weekend to discuss his story. And because he was at a screening of my week on welfare that Bragg put on, 
So he saw me speak at that screening, and now he's wanting to speak up. So when you, when you speak, you become part of a movement. You empower, as I just said, you empower other people. So speak up, whether it's on social media, do a public post, do a blog post, email or write your MLA or any politician you can think of. Just speak up. And get, and, and get informed, right, yeah. as, as you do. And I can, I can say my life is better since, since I've started speaking up. Like, right. you'll meet the, perhaps one of the few silver linings is that when you speak up, you'll meet the best people you met in your life. And I stand by that. Mm-hmm. Good. I so agree with Tim, and I would add to that, uh, write your local newspapers. Make this as public as you can. And uh, if you are a person living in poverty, absolutely speak up. Every time you speak up, you are delivering reality to people that uh, confronts these welfare stereotypes. And as for who is responsible for food insecurity, we are. We are responsible for food insecurity. Government represents us. So the very least thing that you can do if you're wondering what you can do today is do not indulge in welfare stereotypes. Just like racial stereotypes are being challenged, orientation stereotypes are being challenged, gender stereotypes are being challenged, Mm -hmm. we need to challenge welfare stereotypes. And we need to ask ourselves what kind of people we want to be. We're in the month of December right now. It is Christmas right (laughs) now. This is the one month out of 12 where we actually get in tune with the Bob Cratchit in ourselves and we look at his special needs kid and we talk about how we want to be better people and give to one another. And then the rest of the 11 months, we close that door and we say, oh, if you're poor, it's your fault. So who do we actually want to be? And if it's the people we get in tune with at this in this month in particular, if that's who we really want to be, if we want to recognize that humans are humans and stuff happens to people and we all are going to need a little bit to help sometimes, then we need to be in touch with that part of ourselves the entire year round, not just now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going with the idea that it's, it's compassion instead of condemnation, empathy rather than umbrage and antipathy, and, and the idea of, of understanding uh, how far all of us are, or any of us are, from this reality, uh, it, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that long a walk for many of us. Fact over yeah. fiction, education over ignorance. There we go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, we're going to. This conversation is, is only beginning. Uh, thank you for I, something you said in in your uh, video. It takes a lot of strength to be strong. And I yeah. and I and I kept saying that over yeah. and over again. It does take a lot of strength to be strong. Thank you for your strength and thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thank you for listening to Shift for Brains. If you wish to comment or you want to join in the discussion, or you want to give us some ideas for future podcasts, you can contact us on Twitter at ShiftBrainsPod, on Facebook at ShiftForBrainsPod, or on our website, ShiftForBrains.ca. This is a creative endeavor brought to you from ARC, whose mandate is to create space for authentic human exchange. If you want to know more about ARC, we're on Twitter at ArcWorksCA, Facebook backslash ArcWorks CA or at our website, ArcWorks.ca.